Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Isaac Mirashi, here with my co-host Kate Price-McCarthy. Hi Kate. Hi Isaac, it's good to see you. And thank you to our supporter BorrowBox, the library app that lets you download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. Outside is looking truly autumnal and if you follow us on Instagram you'll see we've been celebrating this cosier weather with the Booktober Challenge. It's been great seeing everyone's book recommendations and their reading nooks. And it's not too late to take part either. Follow us on Instagram at Hans Libraries to get involved and respond to the daily prompt with your favourite reads. Yeah, I've loved seeing everyone interpreting the daily prompt differently. There have been some really creative responses and my to-read list has definitely gotten longer because of it. We'll hear how Lucia from Hive Library has been taking part in the Booktober Challenge later when she joins us to discuss one of her favourite books. But first, the phenomenal spy fiction writer Charles Cumming is our guest on the podcast this month to talk about his gripping new novel, Judas 62. He's been called the best in the new generation of spy writers, picking up the torch from legends like John le Carrie and Len Dayton. Yeah, with the new Bond film out, it seems like the perfect time to get myself into a good spy book. Charles Cummings won the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award back in 2012. But what's even more interesting is that he was actually approached by MI6 in the 90s to be recruited. That's amazing. I can't imagine what that must have been like. Here's Kate talking with Charles. The interview starts with a short excerpt from Judah 62. Cosetta left the phone charging beside his bed and set out for an afternoon of fishing. In years gone by, it had been a matter of pride to the local residents that they did not need to lock their cabins, but times had changed in America. Cosetta was now careful not only to make sure the windows and doors were secure, but also that the dome-lens CCTV camera above the porch was in good working order. Then he could relax. The lake was the best of his adopted country. In his opinion, the calm sunlit waters and the cry of the loon were as American as apple pie and Nelson Rockefeller. He was never happier than when fishing in summer, breathing the fresh mountain air, listening to the gentle putter of distant motorboats and the delighted laughter of swimmers. A little more than a mile away, FSB officer Vasily Zutalin, disguised as a US postal worker, approached the front door of Cosetta's log cabin. He picked the simple lock with ease and made his way into the kitchen, confirming that the label on the bottle of Zalatan exactly matched the details on the duplicate in his hand Zutalin switched Cosetta's glaucoma medication for an A234 Novichok dissolved in saline, closed the door of the fridge and returned to his vehicle. At the wheel was Virginia Terry, an SVR illegal, resident in Vermont for more than nine years. It was Terry who had run Palatnik to the ground thanks to a detail in the Snowden files and a chance remark by a CIA officer she had befriended in Washington. With the connivance of FSB director Alexander Makarov and his associate Mikhail Gromik, Terry had obtained Cosetta's medical records from a doctor's surgery and plotted the assassination. Thank you very much for joining me today to talk about your new book, Judah 62. Now, this is the second of your espionage novels to feature Latin Kite, and it follows the very successful publication of the first in the series, which was Box 88. Now, could you set the scene for us a bit 
for this book by telling us a bit about Box 88 and about the Judas List and why it has particular significance for Kite. Sure. First, thanks for having me on. Uh, yes, B Box 88 is a fictional Anglo-American intelligence agency uh, which does the jobs that MI6's CIA either can't or won't do, sort of cleans up the mess, and uh, it has very little um, oversight and therefore much more freedom to, to move around and, and do interesting things. And my hero, uh, Lachlan Kite, is recruited into Box 88 when he's just 18, and in the first novel, Box 88, he, he has to spy on the, on the family of his best friend in, in the first summer holidays after he leaves boarding school. And then the, the sort of uh, USP, if you like, of the books is that you have two timelines. You, you have a, a, a story in the past and then a story right up to date in the present. So you see Kite as a, as a man of, in his late 40s, who's now very senior, kind of running things in London for Box 88. And uh, typically the backstory from the 1980s, 1990s has some impact on the present day. So in Judas 62, Kite remembers uh, a mission that he was sent on in 1993 to uh, the Russian city of Voronezh, where he's asked to find, locate, and, and, and bring out a, a chemical weapons scientist, a sort of top scientist who, in, in the style of Mr. T, refuses to fly. So he has to come out by, uh, by car. And um, as is the nature of these things, um, everything goes wrong. He finds himself being tailed by a fairly vicious KGB FSK officer. And then that man, who's called Mikhail Gromik, in the present-day storyline, Kite has an opportunity to, uh, let's say, go after him in, in Dubai. So there's a contemporary story set in Dubai. I'm making it sound far more complicated than it is. Mm -hmm. It's really just two, it's two books for the price of one. How about that? And I was interested when I was digging around doing my research that the name Box 88, that there is a, a kind of real life significance from that. And am I right in thinking that MI5 is referred to as Box by the sort of civil service because it used to refer to its box number, its postal number? Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's a bit naughty of me to have, have stolen that. But um, <laughs> yes, they would refer to Box 500 or just Box I don't know if they still do, but they certainly did in the old days, so in the Cold War, in the immediate post-Cold War period. But yeah, that was the inspiration for, for Box 88. As you said, you have uh, two interlinked and very dramatic stories. One, as you say, from the 1990s, set in Voronezh, a pretty large city in Russia that I'm ashamed to say I've never heard of, and then Dubai in the present day. And you really could not have picked two more different settings. And was that a contrast something you were really keen to get across. Yes. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons to write this series is that the, the, the sort of what I call the mobile phone problem, the, the Wi-Fi problem in, in writing contemporary spy thrillers, it's increasingly difficult to create jeopardy, to create suspense in the present day, because you can always find somebody uh, with, through a mobile phone. You can always follow their progress through a mobile phone. They themselves can call for help with a mobile phone. Um, they can be blown up with a mobile phone. They can be listened to, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very difficult to, well, it's, in fact, it's impossible to go to a place like Dubai nowadays um, under what they call alias, i.e. you'd have to go as Kate Price. <laughs> yeah. You'd have to go as Kate Price and they would read your, your face as you go through and you'd have a retinal scan and fingerprints and all the rest of it. Whereas 
30, 40 years ago, if you wanted to go to Leipzig in, in, in Germany, East Germany, um, you could go as any number of different women wearing a disguise if you wanted to. And, and if anybody questioned your bona fides, you'd have a backstop in London who would answer the phone and go, yeah, yeah, we know, we know Jenny really well. She's worked for us for years. And that would be all the checking that they could do. Whereas now you have Facebook and Twitter and online banking records and online phone records, plus all the stuff I've already mentioned, like uh, retinal scans and all the rest of it. So it, it's impossible to pretend to be somebody else. And I wanted to write, to sort of go back to the 1990s and write spy thrillers in a decade where there weren't there weren't really any spy thrillers. There was the, the sort of fall of the Berlin Wall, um, sort of Fukuyama's end of history, you know, um, and the spy novel was a little bit dead with the exception of Le Carre writing uh, Secret Pilgrim and The Night Manager and one or two others. It, it really only came back into, started flourishing again in the wake of 9-11. So there's this decade where that time forgot as far as the genre is concerned, and I wanted to kind of fill it. And mm. so not least because of the technology, because there was no Google, because when, when Kite goes to Voronezh in 1993, he can't ring home. He can't send a, an encrypted end-to-end WhatsApp message to his handler or to his girlfriend or to his mum. He's, he's isolated. Um, and that's dramatically incredibly interesting. Now, if you went to Voronezh, there'd be no jeopardy. Yeah, and he's having to use things like hanging a piece of red clothing in his window or listening out for somebody whistling a tune in order to be able to make communications. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, all the old sort of chalk, chalk marks on the wall tradecraft, which I think people love. They love it in Dayton's novels. They love it in Le Carre. Obviously, they love it in, in movies and television adaptations. Um, how do you communicate secretly with somebody? How do you protect your identity? How do you pretend to be somebody you are not? Um, these are all... Uh, you know, major themes in, in espionage fiction on screen and on the page. And you can access those themes much more easily in the 20th century than you can in the 21st century. There's a really strong sense of place in this book. I felt myself transported to both the times and places you talk about. But you also get a very strong sense of the personalities behind the story uh, in characters like the Russian scientist Aronov and Kara, who's a, a former MI5 officer. But it's Kite, of course, who plays the very central role in both interlinked stories as a very young man in the 1990s. And now Kite shares a fair few similarities with yourself. Same sort of age. You both went to the most famous of public schools. You also both went to Edinburgh University. And of course, you were both approached to work for a secret service. So would it be fair to describe Kite as perhaps the most autobiographical character you've written? I think on the surface, yes. We, have, we share a lot of biographical similarities. As you say, we were both born in Scotland. My uh, mother and, and Lockie's mother both ran a hotel um, just south of Strenra near Port Patrick on the west coast of Scotland. But my father, I'm glad to say, is still alive and well and didn't drink himself to death in the 1980s. And my mother is a very, very different animal to, to Cheryl Kite. And I didn't sort of accidentally go to Eton or what Eton is called, Alford College in the books. Um, it was always sort of intended that I should go there. Um, whereas Lockie kind of just ends up there Accidentally, because because his mother knows somebody and comes into some money and, and thinks it would he would benefit from going away to boarding school. She, she basically wants to get rid of him. <laughs> so, uh, and he's he's cleverer than I am. He's he's physically far more courageous than I am, um, and more at that age he knows himself in a way that I didn't. He's he's more confident around women, for example. Uh, he's he's much better at cricket too. I should say that. <laughs> um, so he's a, he's a kind of. Um, a super idealized version of me, I think. <laughs> and right. our paths, our pa even though I was approached when I was, what, 25, 26, 
to go into SIS, MI6. The paths that we both took were obviously very, very different. Now, in the book, uh, Kite talks a bit about what he sees as the ultimate purpose of Box 88, that is to make it difficult for corrupt people to stay in power. Uh, do you think that is the motivation that drives people to work for organisations like MI6? Yes, yeah, a good question. I That was one of the last things I, I mean, it's towards the end of the book and it was one of the last things I wrote because I, I've thought about this really all through my career, all through my life, really. Why do people go into the secret world? And in the old days, there was a, it was for reasons of patriotism and also fighting bad guys, Nazis, for example, or Russians. And there was a clear reason why it was necessary for decent, clever, brave people to, to work for the intelligence services. And then in the in the 21st century, those those notions of patriotism, of respect for one's elders almost, or certainly for respect for one's country, I think that's been diluted a little bit. And people, why are they going into MI5 now? I, th- I think it's counterterrorism must be a main drive. I know that there was huge recruitment in America, both militarily and in the intelligence world after 9-11. This idea of keeping people safe in their beds is a principal driver more than patriotism, but also excitement, the sense of being in a rarefied world, power, um, having some kind of uh, influence on day-to-day events. I think those are some of the reasons why people apply to and and will get into places like MI6 and MI5. One of the principal drives for Box 88 is to to get hold of these people and and bring them down. In fact, in Kite 3, which I'm just about to start writing, that's what Lockie sets himself to. At one point in the book, there are two members of the Box 88 team talk about the addictive nature of this sort of secret world in which they work. Uh, and they can kind of see it might damage them in the long term, particularly where you're having to kind of pretend to be one sort of person when, in fact, you're actually another. Do you think there is a danger of this for people who work in secret services? I think there really is, yes. I have a great friend who worked in that world for a long time, and, and he, he has grown up children now who are at a point where they would decide, you know, what they're going to do with their lives. And I was asking him, did he think that any of them would be suitable for, to do what he did? And he, he didn't like the idea of them sort of being swallowed up by that world because of the sort of psychic damage that it might do, which I thought was quite telling, even though this person has had a remarkable career and has done remarkable things on behalf of people like you and me. So the sort of psychic damage outweighs the benefits, so to speak and the excitement. It's, it's sort of on the record that, that if you're an intelligence officer, let's say in Nairobi, and you have to go out at 11 o'clock at night to, to meet an agent in secret, uh, and you say to your wife or you say to your husband, you know, see you later, honey, and on off you go, and you can't say what it is that you're doing, you, you can't say what time you'll be home. Um, there's an enormous amount of sort of trust in a marriage, for example, in a relationship, which gets tested again and again and again by that sort of work. You know, we, we need to know who we're sharing our lives with. And quite often in that world, we don't. And then there's obviously just the sort of the stress of it and the excitement. Alcohol has been a problem historically in the services, as it is in lots of high stress jobs. I think it's a really unnatural way of living your life, but perhaps for 10 years, for six years, for 12 years, a really, really exciting thing to do. I was interviewing uh, Sir David Omand, who's the former director of GCHQ at the Cheltenham Literary Festival just a couple of days ago. He was saying it's a, it's a concern that really bright, intelligent, ambitious people are getting drawn away by Google and merchant banks and, and oil companies rather than going into MI5 and MI6 purely because they're going to get paid five times as much money. 
his answer to this was just maybe go and make some money and then come and work for us or work for us and then go and make some money, mix it up a bit. And that, that I think is a solution, but a career from soup to nuts, you know, 23 years old to 55 in intelligence, that's going to take its toll. No question about it. One of the Russian characters in the book talks about how he hates Putin even more than he hated the communists. That is that communist leaders had very little choice but to work within a system that already existed, whereas Putin and his cohorts have kind of chosen the route they've taken. Is this something that you feel strongly about? Yeah, I feel very strongly about that. I think he's disgusting and I think the people around him are revolting and I think they've stripped Russia to its bones. They're murderous, completely corrupt and vicious. And uh, it's a gangster regime. And as you say, exactly, the old guard, the Soviet old guard, I mean, they had a choice, but they were inside a system and they, they'd imbibed it with their mother's milk. I was in Moscow a few years ago on a British Council writers tour. Moscow, I'd never been there before. And Moscow itself is, is a sort of gleaming modern city. You know, it's like Geneva or New York or London. But as soon as you go outside, the sort of potholes in the road, the towns and villages you pass through, they haven't really changed in 20, 30 years, many of them. Um, and the sort of infrastructure just isn't there and the, and the medicines and the schools and the, and it should be, and it's not because corruption is just in, embedded in the body politic there. And then you compare it with somewhere like Dubai, which in, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> Dubai has its problems, of course, but you look at the development and the investment that's been made in that tiny little country, which was a fishing village 30 years ago when the Soviet Union collapsed and is now this, this vibrant 21st century metropolis. You just think, I just think what Russia could have been economically and internationally rather than what it has become, which is this sort of angry, vicious, vengeful, pointlessly cruel gangster state. And then, you know, there's Skripal and Litvinenko and, and, um, journalists being jailed and imprisoned and the political opposition. I mean, Navalny, obviously, it's, it's, it's revolting. And um, yeah, I, as you can tell, I feel quite strongly about it. And I think that yeah. comes across in Judas. And if that's the case, how can the UK carry on its relationship diplomatically with Russia? I don't think it really has one. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, they've been sort of in a blood feud for, for 150 years and, and that will continue. I don't think anybody trusts Russia They've tried to get them into the, you know, around the table and to work on more sort of peaceable strategies. But time and again, the Russians make a calculation what would be the most offensive, most uh, annoying thing that we could do to Washington and London and Paris. And, th- and that's the thing that they choose to do. It's, it, that's the mindset. I mean, it, it, sounds, it sounds absurd, but that, but that really is often how they think. On a different subject completely, I find it it's interesting the way that COVID is giving authors an interesting challenge at the moment. First of all, whether to acknowledge or ignore it within the storyline itself. And secondly, the obstacles it presents from a research point of view. And I felt uh, COVID in this book provided quite an interesting angle for today's espionage industry, whether that was difficulty about moving around the globe or remote working, whatever it was. But I'm assuming it also provided you with quite a few challenges for your research. Yeah, it certainly did. Um, I, I, I never, I never went to Voronish. I mean, the whole thing is is done from um, books and uh, internet and YouTube and, and and Google Earth and and talking to people who who knew the city and photographs and so forth. I'm um, I'm in good company there. Martin Cruz Smith never went to Moscow when he wrote Gorky Park. Um, so uh, and, and usually, I mean, I make a point of going to these places and and um, tasting the food and smelling the air and and um, and taking as many notes as I possibly can to be as authentic as possible. 
I did go to Dubai three times and I went during the breaks in the, in the pandemic. And yeah, it was, there was a lot of COVID-related uh, socially distant behavior going on, most obviously masks. And masks are very useful to spies because you, know, you put a pair of sunglasses and a hat and a mask on in Dubai and the heat, nobody can tell who you are. So suddenly kind of back in the Cold War, if you like. Um, and I make use of that in the book. But actually also, and I'm sure you've had other writers on, on the podcast who have said this, that the, uh, the French have this wonderful term for it, the confinement. Um, the confinement last year was difficult for all of us, obviously, um, but, but in a particular way for writers, the sort of the day-to-day inspiration that you take from meeting somebody or going to a play or, or um, watching a movie or, or having lunch with someone interesting, um, that, that is a fuel that fires your imagination, your creativity, all of that was not available. So this book was sort of particularly difficult to write. A few authors have mentioned that, and I think for non-writers, they'd be surprised at that because they think of the writer as being upstairs in the attic, scribbling away and enjoying the isolation. But it does seem to have been a bit, bit the opposite. It shows how much writers need the stimulation of the outside world and from other writers and from the readers and from, um, yeah, just engaging with what's going on around them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is interesting uh, that the UK seems to have a a continuing obsession with spy thrillers. Interesting that you should point to the fact that in the 90s, it wasn't such a popular genre, but James Bond, perennially popular with a new film just out and so on. Why do you think it is that we are still so fascinated with the espionage industry? I think Bond has a lot to do with it. I think that people, you know, they originally, after the war, they loved those books as escapism. And then the movies, Connery and with Roger Moore, and they, they, were, they were so fantastic. And they put Blighty on the map, so to speak, and they made us feel more powerful, influential than we really were. They were wonderful escapism and beautiful women, delicious food and villains and so forth. And then... We've just we've had such great writers in the genre, from from Joseph Conrad to Erskine Childers to Eric Ambler, uh, Len Dayton, and then obviously Le Carre. People have have absorbed and read these books and millions of copies of them over you know over more than a century, and it's kind of cr- created its own industry in a way. And then in a sort of deeper way, I suppose there's something in the British character about and. You know, a gentleman doesn't read another person's mail, that sort of thing, pretending to be somebody that you are not. And maybe there's something kind of, I don't know, uh, something obviously something dangerous about spying, something sexy about spying that appeals to the British particularly, because in it's an American incarnation, sort of American spy fiction is much more militaristic, much more gung-ho, much more like a sort of Jack Reacher novel or, a, you know, Jason Bourne or, 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 or um, whereas we, we go in for that much more sort of contemplative, one-on-one, you know, there's wonderful interrogation scenes in, in Le Carre's fiction, you know, pages and pages and pages of, of men behaving strangely in rooms. <laughs> it just seems to appeal. With a writer like uh, Le Carre, often what his books are doing is using an espionage genre to then talk about issues about loyalty and the meaning of death and all sorts of other things. And I think that's, a, that's something maybe that, uh, that British espionage novels do a little bit more and I can see that in your novel as well is uh, is looking at ideas of identity and family and what makes somebody who they are and what drives them those are all sorts of issues that you can bring into something like an espionage novel yeah exactly I mean it, it can it gives you a lot you, you can do romance you can do politics you can do straight thrills and and as you say identity and and the the, the effects on an individual or a group of individuals of, of exposure to that world over a long time 
tremendous violence, greed. It's human beings in extremists, whether it's Blofeld or, or Carla or, or, or in my book, Mikhail Gromik, you know, just going up against these monsters. I mean, I have always, I have always been interested in, partly because for personal reasons, when I was approached and didn't get in, but they sort of said to me, if you're interested in going to MI5, we can explore that. And I said, no. And, and Aspire by Nature, my first book, sort of came out of this feeling of, you know, what would have happened to me if I had gone into that world, if I'd accepted that invitation, if I'd gone across the river and had a chat with them and worked in MI5 in the 1990s, you know, what effect would that have had on my relationship with my then girlfriend, who then became my wife, with my family, with my friends? Would I have been any good at it? You know, that's sort of thing, you know, just well, why did they why did they want me? What did they see in me that was that compelled them to think that I would be uh, I mean, you know, typically they do they they're drawn to broken reeds. Um yes, people who've, you know, with fractured families or you know, boarding school, that kind of mentality. So it's always, always fascinated me. And and you see this in Lachlan Kite in Box 88, Judah 62, you know, just, just you know, watching him, this very tough. Um, ambitious, brave young man getting tossed and turned by the secret world. You've mentioned the third in the series. So um, that's something you're working on at the moment, is it? And I, I understand, I don't know whether I should be saying this, you've just come back from a research trip to Senegal. So it, does that give us an, a, a bit of a hint about how this book might develop? Yes, yes. Um, you've got very good sources. <laughs> um, I, I, ju- I just got back a few days ago. The idea is that uh, Kite will be on holiday uh, or pretending to be on holiday um, on the Senegalese coast in 1995. Uh, and in, in reality, we'll be looking at a, a Rwandan war criminal, a genocidaire who's hiding in Dakar, the capital of Senegal, with an idea of grabbing him and um, bringing him to justice, putting him on trial. And then the contemporary story will have, will sort of link to that, have a, have a not a direct link, but a, a link to an individual who, Kite encountered in, in Senegal when he was there in 95. Um, I haven't quite worked out that part of the story, but I've got the flashback story worked out pretty well, having been out in Africa in the last t- two weeks. Oh, it was really interesting talking to Charles, and you could see how passionately he feels about Russia and how it uh, behaves with other countries. Yeah, I found it really interesting to see how he handled contrasting the 90s espionage to the present day espionage and sort of how things have changed between the two times. Okay, on to the next section of the podcast where we're joined by Lucia from Hive Library to talk about her reading recommendations and what life is like at Hampshire Libraries. We'll include links to the books we mentioned on our episode show notes. So Lucia, welcome to the podcast. It's such a treat to have you here. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, thank you for bringing us into Hive Library. It's a really lovely and bright and I saw coming in we've got the solar panels all along the roof which is uh, really great to see as well. Yes this library plays an important part in this community many people are coming in right now as the restrictions have eased and it's really really nice to see more people coming in and signing in to become library members. Yeah absolutely so are you seeing more people coming in and joining the library now than you were before do you think? Yes, slowly, slowly, the numbers are building up. So um, we see different people coming in every day. Obviously, we have our regular customers who come here almost every day. But uh, yeah, more families are coming here with children from different age groups, teenagers browsing the comic books and the different books. And uh, we have some other customers who only come in to use the computers. So for different reasons, as I said, it's a community hub. 
Are there any particular activities at the moment that listeners might be interested in that are proving to be quite popular at Hive? Yes, yeah, so we offer knitting after. So for anyone who likes knitting, <laughs> that is a nice activity we have here. We have it every other Thursday from 2 to 4 o'clock. The customers have to bring in their knitting tools. Uh, we also offer um, blind time sessions on Mondays and Thursdays. More families are coming here with their babies and little ones. That is really nice. And uh, one of the most popular activities right now is Code Club. We have a few volunteers who come here on a Thursday from uh, quarter to four to quarter to five. We welcome children from eight to 13 years old and the volunteers teach them how to code. And we've been seeing on the Instagram lots of people taking part in Booktober. Have you been able to take part in that yourself? Uh, yeah, so I also had a look. We have uh, several social media accounts. So we have uh, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And we use the hashtag Booktober to promote um, this challenge. I think a few days ago, um, Hampshire Libraries um, asked, what's your favorite place to read or where do you like reading? And um, I, I said that I love reading at the library because it's nice, it's quiet, it's very peaceful. Yeah, definitely. And just for the listeners, the Booktober challenge is a photo challenge that anyone can take part in just by taking a picture. There's a prompts list on the Hampshire Library's Instagram, so you can go and check that out and have a look, see whether there are any pictures that you'd want to take of your library or or your book choices or anything like that. It's really, really nice to see what everyone is uh, coming up with. There's some really, really beautiful pictures of book covers and everything else. So Really, really good to see that in this cosy month, which is so perfect for reading indoors, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. And you've recommended what I think is going to be a listener favourite. Uh, would you like to introduce it? Yes, it's uh, My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante. That is a book that was published a few years ago. It's part of a series. This is the first book that was published. Um, it's, it tells the story about two girls, um, Elena, nicknamed Lenu, and Rafaela, nicknamed Lila. Is set back in the 50s in, in Naples, in Italy. And the author does a brilliant job describing the atmosphere, how the relationship works. Um, it starts as a beautiful relationship between two young girls, but then you can see that there's some rivalry between them because both of them want to achieve the same thing. So they both want to achieve higher education and leave the neighborhood and, and, and their lives and th- that they have in that neighborhood. So their, their lives are quite similar because they have the, the same background. But then Leela has to stop studying because their parents tell her that she is not allowed to pursue further education. And Lenu carries on. So that's how you know, their, their lives begin to change. So it's really, it's a really good book, honestly. It has lots of interesting characters and the friendship between these two main characters is very fascinating to read and to learn more about it. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think the the themes in the book of sort of friendship and and the neighbourhood and uh, the setting of 1950s Naples is just such a wonderful thing to read about. So you let us know what you like about the book, but... What made you choose it in the first place? So I read the reviews a few years ago when it was first published and everyone was praising the book. It was saying what I mentioned before about the atmosphere and the characters and how, how compelling the book was. So I was intrigued. 
And then I think it was a couple of years after that, my best friend gave me the book set as a gift for my birthday. So I started reading it and it was great. So it exceeded my expectations, actually. Yeah, I think I really see why you can enjoy these characters. I think they've got these these really sort of interesting dynamic of, of sort of competition and a little bit of toxicity, but a lot of admiration and, and they play off each other a lot, don't they? And they kind of hurt each other in ways that, that maybe they, they mean to, but then sometimes they don't mean. And in, did you find the relationship between these, these two girls the main part that interested you here? Yes, that is, that is well, that's the main uh, theme of the story. Well, one of the themes, but it, I think it's the main theme of the story. So the friendship between Elena, Lenu, and Lila. And as you said, it's sort of a, um, they are sort of frenemies because they love each other, but at the same time, they hate each other because they envy what the other has. So maybe Lenu is studying and Lila cannot study. So, and then Lila is more creative and Lenu is not. And Lila starts drawing certain uh, um, some shoes for her father's uh, shoe shop, and uh, Lenu is jealous of that. So, is that 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 uh, rivalry between both of them is very interesting to see. They're both very complex characters, especially Lila, and um, it's it's good to see how they challenge each other. They're both very ambitious. And at the, at the school, they challenge each other because they want to be the best student of their class. So it's very it's interesting to see their competition. Yeah, it definitely is. One thing that actually really struck me was, although it's set in a very different environment to the sort of world that we live in now, a lot of those elements, a lot of those moments of friendship are very, very, I think, authentic representations of what it's like to be a teenage girl and the kind of friendships that you might have and that kind of competition and elements like that. And the similar concerns, you know, they're concerned about boys or at least a few of them are. And it's really nice to be able to see that recognition in a setting that's so different from, from where we are. But you mentioned the character of Leela. She is... I think one of the strongest characters in in the book in terms of her characterization. She's definitely got that ambition. She's very naturally smart. She's very, very hard-headed and completely knows her own mind. It's nice to see that in, in a book, I think. But were there any other characters that really struck you that just made you think, oh, I need to read more about them? So both families, um, because it's, it's very interesting to see how the families are very similar because they come from the same background, but at the same time, they approach their daughter's studies in a different way. So, for example, Lenu's dad is very supportive that her, his daughter is going to pursue higher education and understands that it's very important not only for her, but for her future. So, while on the other hand, Lila's dad is, is um, the typical man back in the 50s, I would say, so it's not at all supportive. He um, rejects the idea of Leela just pursuing higher education, which obviously breaks her heart. And um, other important character, I think, is the teacher. She, uh, she recognizes Leela's talent and she encourages Leela and goes to Leela's house to try to convince Leela's parents to allow Leela to pursue higher education. Um, unfortunately, she's not successful in that. But uh, she plays a very important role 
in both girls' lives. And I think it's a, it's a very important and interesting character to, to, to read and to learn more about her. And we definitely have these sort of emerging themes through, through the differences between Leela and Lenu, how, uh, how attitudes towards girls' education, how attitudes towards class really is the battleground that, that these girls are, are forced to confront each other on. Did you think that was particularly well handled? Yes, definitely. Um, as you said, even though they come from the same background, the neighborhood is a lower class neighborhood. They they have the same goal. They want to leave the neighborhood behind and just just uh, have a, a better life, which is understandable because they come from very poor background. So, as you said, uh, there's uh, different things uh, in the neighborhood within the neighborhood. There, we can see that there's gossip. There's tension, there's violence even, and uh, the author does a great job describing everything. You can mentally go back to that time and place and transport yourself. Even obviously, we we are not familiar with that, but you can think, oh yes, that was probably what was happening in Naples in 1950. So so yeah, she does a great great job describing everything. Mm, yeah, and I, I don't think the value that that description adds to the book can be understated because the neighborhood is the sort of pressure cooker that creates the environment that these two girls exist in and and their whole community exists in. I think it's probably fair to say that it almost acts as another character in the book in a way because it creates that tension and that pressure by putting a, a small community into these situations where they have to compete for Good, good standards of education where you know if you don't get the support it's very easy to see how in that community your life might go a certain way and, and that's where their two lives divert so I think the the description of the neighborhood is just such an essential part of the book really and it creates a lot of atmosphere and it, it does really really transport you doesn't it which is always lovely to read in a book yes definitely yeah <laughs> I think um, one of the things that, that really stood out to me about the novel was how the, uh, the, authors, the author is Elena Ferrante, and that is a pseudonym. It's an idea that, that the person who published this book is Lenu, is the character. And so I think that's, that sort of followed me throughout the whole book, this idea that we maybe can't trust her account, especially of Leela, who she sometimes paints as, as sort of cruel and, and I wonder how much of that competition comes into what we experience and what we see of Leela. Did, did that, did, is that something that you found interesting about the book? Yes, I agree with what you said because um, definitely we only hear one side of the story so we don't know what Leela was experiencing back then, what were her thoughts, her feelings. So it would be interesting to see or to read her side of the story because obviously all people experience same things in different ways. So, as you said, Lenu sometimes paints this image of Lila as some sort of villain in some parts of the book and the following books as well. And we, the readers, we think, oh, yes, maybe Lila is some sort of villain, this horrible person at some point. But we, it, it would be really interesting, as I said, to hear Lila's version of the of the story and see what she, what were her, her thoughts and why she behaved in certain way. 
maybe we'll get that maybe we'll get the perspective in in a in a sort of final book in the series or something you never know you never know so obviously it's been very very popular it's a series and so yeah fans of this style of writing don't have to stop there when they get to the end of the book but it's also been adapted into a very popular tv series on hbo so there's a element there that if you enjoy just reading the first book you can dive straight into the rest of the story via the tv show as well um, and I think it's the kind of thing that might make for a really, really good story, actually. Absolutely, yeah. I think especially with the, that really strong sense of setting and, and place, I'd love to see how that translates onto screen and, and maybe see what, what maybe it can't, it can't replicate as well because there's such, there's such mood and such, such character, as you said, Hattie, to, to the setting that I, I'd be really interested to see how much of that can translate into a, into a visual uh, yes. medium. Yes, I watched um, the first, I think they've, they've uh, recorded the first two seasons. So, and uh, I think they've done a great job with, with the TV show as well. So the, the actors, um, I think the casting was brilliant for both the main characters and also um, supporting characters, supporting roles as the teacher, the parents. So as you said, if maybe the readers are in, intrigued by um, how this is going to be translated into screen, they have the opportunity to watch it. So. Mm, definitely, it's almost an adaptation of a tra- of an adaptation anyway, because it's already been translated from Italian. So I wonder whether we, you might get some of that element if the translation has missed out any of those nuances. Maybe the adaptation will be able to put them back in. And that's interesting because the beginning of the story, uh, the the characters are speaking in the dialect, mm. and uh, but then when the the girls go to school, they learn to speak Italian more fluently, and they rather choose that rather than to carry on with the dialect because they think if they speak in the dialect, is like how their parents behave and the neighborhood behaves, and they want to put that behind themselves, so they want to stand out and. Uh, speaking Italian and I think that was something that stood out for me because you never think of those things and uh, I think the the writer um, made a good point including that in the book. For sure yeah I think that's something that while I was reading I found almost quite hard to to understand because you know in, in English we we don't really have to we you know we have we have slang in different different ways of of talking but we don't have dialects that are truly you know divergent from from English and and I think that's something that I wish I could have understood better and have have had the skill to read the Italian novel because I think that's probably something that we really lose in translation mm-hmm. yeah it's a really good signifier of the yes. class divide isn't it because you, I imagine it doesn't have to be signposted if you're reading it in Italian they'll just have the dialogue as the dialect and you'll just naturally, if you're used to those two different ways of speaking, you'll automatically categorise, oh, this is a person from a certain sector of society talking in that kind of way. And it will do it all naturally. It's where translation has a lot of um, talent. I think translators do so much in trying to get that meaning across. It's just really interesting, isn't it? I it love is, that. it is, it is. So I suppose one thing to ask is if people, our listeners, really enjoyed reading this book or have read it before, are there any recommendations that you have for people who love books like this? What kind of books are similar that they might like as well? Um, one that comes to mind because of the time and place is The Godfather by Mario Puzzo. 
that has also been adapted into film and also sequel and third part. And uh, I think also Mario Puzzo does a fantastic job describing the atmosphere of Sicily and the violins and everything. And you get also transported back then. So if you are, enjoy Italy in the 50s, maybe that's the next book that you should read. And um, another one that I finished recently was A Bitter Orange. It's set in the uh, late 50s, early 60s uh, here in Hampshire. So the main character is a woman in her late 30s. She goes to an abandoned mansion and she has to um, go there and make evaluation of the things that are inside the mansion. So the furniture and what the owner should keep and what he should discard. So she's writing a list and making some drawings and pictures. Uh, but then things change and this turns the book into some sort of mystery. So I will stop there, but I, I recommend it to our listeners. Yeah, and that's one from Claire Filler, who is one of our podcast favourites. We always seem to be mentioning Claire in, in our episodes, but she's a homegrown Hampshire author, so very, very worthy of a mention. <laughs> that sounds like a really interesting one. We've been talking about My Brilliant Friend by uh, Elena Ferrante. It's the first novel in the Neapolitan series. Um, thank you for that recommendation, Lucia. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again in Hyde Library very soon. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. It's been lovely. You know, My Brilliant Friend isn't the kind of book I would usually pick up, but it was really refreshing to read something a bit different. Yeah, no, I read it a few years ago and I'd heard so much hype about the book. It was really interesting to get that glimpse into Neapolitan life. Yeah, and there have been a lot of really interesting book recommendations on the Hampshire Library's blog this month too. There's Carly from the Countryside Service talking about books that inspired her to follow a career in the great outdoors. Sticking to the nature theme, there's a great new book collection called Earth Heroes full of brilliant children's and YA books that look at the issues of climate change and sustainability. I'm definitely going to get some really good book recommendations from that too. And don't forget, we've got Robert Webb's book, Come Again, as our online reading group's book of the month, ready for unlimited downloads as both an audiobook and ebook too. I loved Robert Webb's memoir, How Not To Be A Boy, so I'm really looking forward to seeing how his fiction writing matches up. Yeah, me too. I thought uh, How Not To Be A Boy was such an interesting take on what it means to be a man. And what a shame he had to drop out of Strictly Come Dancing. I've just downloaded uh, Come Again, I haven't read it yet though, I'm looking forward to it. Other unlimited titles for the month include Into the Water by Paula Hawkins, who's probably best known for her huge bestseller, The Girl on the Train, and also Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Launch. That was a really groundbreaking book. I read that one as well, I really, really enjoyed it. See the episode show notes for more unlimited titles. And thank you once again to BorrowBox for supporting our podcast. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Love Your Life. I'm Isaac Pravashi. And I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. 